Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't know if you caught this earlier this week, or was it, I guess it was yesterday that this happened. Anyway, you lose track. City Council has pushed ahead with its plan to convert Main Street, but some of the plans that were talked about, I don't know, I, I got to tell you, listening to it seems to me that the underlying intention here is to make Hamilton entirely undrivable. That's what I heard when I was listening to a bunch of the discussion. Let me bring in John Best. He's publisher of the Bay Observer. Love having John on here. John, how are you today? Just great. John, I don't know if you were tuned in yesterday listening to this debate about the conversion of Main Street. Now, they haven't made a final decision on it, but listening to some of the councillors talk about what they are interested in doing or what the plans might be or whatever else, I could not help but think that this is moving towards making a large swath of downtown Hamilton engineered gridlock. That, that's what it sounds like to me. That's the plan. Well, it, there's no question it's going to reduce uh, the number of uh, lanes. Uh, they're going to put in a westbound lane, so that takes uh, one of the eastbound lanes out. Uh, but there's also going to be, um, there are also, even now, are a number of traffic calming uh, measures that have been taken. And uh, with the result that uh, traffic has been significantly uh, calmed along there, I drove through the area uh, a week ago and the, there was construction, there was just, uh, you know, it was a gauntlet to get from, from Dundurn to Queen Street took uh, about 20 minutes. And that's without any of the changes uh, being made. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is going to have that impact. And um, it's a question of timing as well. I know uh, councillors were eager to uh, speed the project up. Um, and But the question is, uh, will that collide with the uh, LRT construction? And if it does, then I think downtown Hamilton is going to be pretty much a no-go zone. But John, I, I think it's going to be regardless. So one of the, uh, or at least a couple of the councillors talked about, right now there are five westbound, five eastbound lanes coming from Maine at when you hit Dundurn Street. Now there's two on-ramps or exit ramps from the highway. So you've got eastbound highway traffic coming into the city there. You've got westbound highway traffic. You've got Westdale traffic. There were There was talk of making it, whittling that down, funneling that down to two eastbound lanes. Which when you do that and you have stoplights along the way, John, I, I can't even fathom what the traffic is going to be backed up. We're going to have traffic backed up to McMaster waiting to cross Dundurn Street. Well, the, the report that uh, staff presented uh, this week to Public Works, the one area where they did stick to their guns was the issue of uh, the two and two versus three and one lanes. And and they they made a pretty strong case that if you tried the uh, two lanes each way method, what you'd end up with is uh, terrible traffic on all the little side streets through the area. And uh, so it, it looks like, you know, it, it is going to be uh, three lanes eastbound, one lane westbound. Uh, that appears to be 
what staff is recommending, and so far that looks like what it's going to be. But and, and and that's clearly what staff has recommended. In fact, in the report, it said the idea of two lanes each way would create the worst traffic, and yet there were a number of councillors who sounded very interested in pursuing that. I, and and again, I, I I'm not sure if I know the intent is to slow people down along there. I don't know though. It almost sounds like the intent is to make it to deter people from coming downtown. That, I mean, that really, if you live in Ancaster, Stony Creek, Dundas, Flamborough, the mountain, and this happens, is there any reason that you would want to come downtown and subject yourself to gridlock? Well, it ties in with this notion that suddenly we're going to become a, overnight, we're going to become a transit city uh, based on the fact that we're replacing a bus beeline with uh with trains uh, that run something like three minutes faster. Uh, the whole, you know, if, if the idea is that we make it impassable for cars so that people will use transit, uh, I guess I would just say good luck with that uh, because most of the people on the mountain uh, already uh, use their cars uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which is commuting to out-of-town jobs. Um, it's not, you know, it. who knows? I'm... I'm I'm not a traffic engineer, but neither are most of the members of council as far as I know, but that doesn't stop people from getting out their crayons and trying to work on these maps. Yeah, but if you, I mean, if you're a, a councillor and you're wanting people to use the LRT who are coming from elsewhere, I mean, look, let's be, let's be realistic. If you live in Waterdown right now and you're planning to come down for an event in downtown Hamilton on Friday night, and you're planning to use public transit, you're going to have to leave on Tuesday morning to get there. It, it just, it's not realistic for most people in the suburbs to use transit in the city right now. It just isn't. No, and and I think in fairness, the water down is probably the outlier. Uh, there, you know, there, the plan is is looking for more from Ancaster, more from Dundas. Uh, Councillor Kassar uh, on another matter was was talking today at a council meeting and and he seemed to envision a, a time when uh, if enough cars were, uh, if it became difficult enough for cars to operate, that uh, it would encourage people even from Ancaster to use public transit to get downtown. I'm not sure about that, but um, that's his uh, that's his view. John, I, just before we finish on this topic, we were talking about Main Street and the conversion but we're also, we have to factor in when, it, when we're discussing driving in the city and where it's going to go, um, King Street, for a s- large stretch of it through the downtown, is soon going to have no vehicle traffic because all of it will be used up by LRT. And Dundurn Street is now going to have, between King and Main, going to have LRT tracks taking up half that road. There is a big chunk of this city that is going to become almost impossible to drive in. Well, and I, I think part of the problem is, uh, I mean, we've been under this uh, LRT bubble for over 15 years. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for city staff, but I think it, it's career limiting for anybody on city staff right now to actually provide an honest evaluation of what the downtown looks like. Uh, I, I think many people in the community would like to see some kind of a traffic engineering forecast of exactly what all this is going to look like. We we talk about Main Street in isolation from LRT. 
Um, Metrolinx, as you mentioned, has changed the route. It's going to affect Dundurn Street, which is a, a fairly major arterial road as well. Um, I don't see anybody putting the pieces together uh, so that we can get a holistic look at uh, what all this simultaneously happening is going to look like. And uh, with the acceleration of the Main Street conversion, it really does look like LRT and Main Street conversion are going to be happening simultaneously. And I haven't seen anybody take a stab at what that really is going to mean for, you know, and that's going to be a several year project, both of them. So, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of question marks there, and, and I don't think we're getting the best information that's available. On that topic, on the LRT, there was a really interesting story in The Spectator. Matthew Van Dongen um, wrote it in the paper today. LRT planners are pitching an alley strategy for downtown Hamilton businesses, essentially saying use your back doors as your front doors for consumers, for customers to come in while the roads are being chewed up for the LRT. Do you think businesses can realistically make a go of it if they're making people come into back alleys and coming in the back door? Well, I'd like to know how many of them have back alleys. Uh, I mean, there are definitely some back alleys along King Street, but, you know, if you look at the, the worst, the narrowest stretch between uh, uh, Wellington and, and downtown, uh, there's no back alleys, or there may be back alleys, but I don't think they're through. There, there's parts of them that are blocked off, and there, there could even be fencing back there. Uh, I think it's a crazy idea, to be quite honest. I just wonder how many people, and I know you hear this, I hear this, people listening hear this, who say, I'm already a little nervous about going downtown sometimes. There's a fair chunk of the population that is nervous about town. I wonder how many of them are going to say, yeah, but I really feel good about walking through a back alley. I already feel nervous walking on the main street or lowercase m on the main streets. Now I'm going to go into the alleys. This one seems to me like it's a, a wish and a prayer. Yeah, it's uh, it's urbanism at its uh, outer extreme, I would say, and uh, there there may be communities where where back alleys uh, were, uh, you know, uh, ran straight through in enough of a distance that th that would make sense. But you know, I mean, when the when the LRT is being built and when the construction is taking place there will be uh, some desperate attempt to find a back door, that's for sure. But whether you can get a vehicle in there or not is another matter. Well, that that's a great point too, because deliveries have to happen. Stores need deliveries. And that's a challenge. And if you have an alley, that's probably what it's going to be for, is it not? Yeah, uh, I, w I would think so. Uh, it just, you know, we're we're thinking about things like that when, you know, sort of the macro issues we're, we're really not dealing with, like, is there enough money to build the project? If there isn't enough money, what are we going to do? Uh, how much is the operating and maintenance going to cost? Uh, you know, those, uh, those kind of things. It, it just seems like we're, we're sort of leapfrogging over the actual problem, which is, uh, is the thing going to get built? Is there enough money to build it? Well, and that seems to have kind of gone quiet and I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't believe maybe you do, John, I don't believe that the last number that we heard of what 3.4 or $3.2 billion, I don't believe for a second that that's going to cover it now, not with inflation and the cost of everything going up. And yet we've heard nothing really about 
where things are or who's going to cover what, or is the province still covering it? There, every week it seems that passes raises more questions about this in my mind. Well, and we're also two years away from almost simultaneous elections at all three levels. So that's just another wrinkle uh, in the mix. Uh, neither the two-way conversion nor the LRT are going to be uh, anywhere near uh, any kind of completion, probably not even start. The, the two-way conversion will probably start. The LRT has still got to go through roughly two years of procurement process. So, you know, we're, we're going to be facing elections at all three levels with uh, a lot of these questions still up in the air unless somebody decides to sort out the mess. You know, I never, I never told you that I was going to ask you this, and I normally don't tell John what we're going to be talking about. He knows roughly sometimes, but so it's unfair, but let's say John, and I'm just throwing this out there Uh, again, I don't believe that 3.2 or $3.4 billion is remotely going to cover the LRT as planned now. So let's say, and I'm just throwing a number out there. Let's say the number comes back at $5 billion now, and that may not even be enough. Do you think it gets done? Do you think that upper levels of government simply say, I don't care what it costs, we're going to pay for it and make it happen? I think it's going to be a tough call. Um, and if it happens right after a provincial election and the current government is is reelected, um, I think it's, uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I, I think the next provincial election is really the probably the watershed on it because the way the deal is worked out between the feds and the province, if there are those kind of cost overruns, they're all going to fall on the province. So if it's another two billion or a billion and a half, that's all going to be on the province of Ontario. And uh, that, you know, that's going to be a, a very interesting call for somebody. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that will be interesting with uh, travel in the lower city of Hamilton, whether it's LRT, whether it's conversions, whether it's blocked roads, whatever. It's uh, There's a lot of things that we're going to be waiting to see how they all play out. Uh, that is John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. You can find his work online. John, always appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Good to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Saturday night at 7, if you tune into Global TV, uh, you will be able to find a special that has been done by my next guest, partly, um, about rising hate, especially rising anti-Semitism in the wake of what happened in October. And it's Jeff Semple is my guest. He is with Global News. Uh, Jeff, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Great to be with you. This is one of the uh, real mysteries to me, and maybe it shouldn't be. Uh, back in 9-11, when 9-11 happened, there was clearly some uh, people who were Muslim who were not terrorists were affected. We understand that. People lashed out in some ways. This one, though, seems to be a little different, though, because that lashing out was misguided, but it was because the people who flew those planes into the building were Muslim people, conflated those wrongly. But in this case, the people who were the victims of October and the attack were Jews. And yet somehow they are now the ones who are facing this anti-Semitism. It, to me, it just, it does, it almost doesn't even make sense how this has all happened. Yeah. And we've, you know, we've crunched the numbers and they've since October the 7th, we've seen a massive surge in anti-Semitic incidents right across the country. We canvassed police forces in all of Canada's major cities. 
uh, and uh, you know, many cities track hate crimes. Many of them have breakdowns specific to anti-Semitism, and those numbers showed a huge surge. Um, in, like depending on the city, double, more than double uh, what they'd seen in the previous year. Um, and yeah, as you noted, uh, hard to sort of make sense of it. On one hand, of course, you know, Jewish groups will tell you that they're concerned that the Hamas attack on October 7th, when Hamas attacked Israel and slaughtered all of those civilians, that that uh, may have emboldened people elsewhere in the world who are anti-Semitic to act on their horrible impulses. Uh, and of course, you know, the subsequent uh, Israeli bombing of Gaza and the war in Gaza now is fueling a lot of anger, a lot of people upset by the horrific stories and images they're seeing coming out of Gaza every day, uh, but that are then taking that anger out on ordinary Jewish civilians here in Canada. Are police, when you've been looking around, are most of the incidents that are being reported being investigated and are charges being laid or are is that not happening no i mean you know a lot of the the victims uh, whom we spoke with right across the country uh sort of talking jewish victims who have been subjected to anti-semitic hate uh obviously takes all kinds of shapes and forms i mean some homes and businesses have had uh horrible anti-semitic graffiti uh, you know, spray painted Nazi swastikas and Jews must die tagged onto the garage of this family in small town Wishego, Ontario, uh, for example. Um, and in those cases, you know, they, they call the police, but we rarely see arrests in those cases unless there's some, you know, doorbell video or something. I mean, these are hard cases to investigate. Uh, but even in, you know, in those cases, we've heard people, you know, victims, I think largely have said to me anyway, that they have been pleased with the police response, that they, you know, feel like police are taking it seriously. And of course, you know, it, it, it runs the gambit from graffiti uh, to hate, to, to hate mail and death threats right up to violence. I mean, we, I visited a school in Montreal where in November, it's an elementary school, a Jewish elementary school, no affiliation with Israel, uh, but it's a, it's a religious school. And someone not once, but twice shot into the school. Uh, in the early hours, both cases, uh, they only happened a few days apart. Uh, but someone came in the morning and shot a bullet right through the door, went right into the interior door where there are lockers, classrooms, just horrific stuff. And there have been no arrests in that case either. And often that is the common refrain, unfortunately, Scott, as a lot of these cases are being investigated, but police don't have a lot to work with. And so we haven't seen a lot of arrests. Do you think it's being treated with the same... Um... Let me back up for a second. We saw, for example, when the George Floyd thing happened, that there was an awful lot of crackdown. Anything that might have been considered um, objectionable was looked into. If we've had crosswalks, rainbow crosswalks, where drivers have skidded their tires and immediately the police are on those. I, I wonder if the same um, urgency is being given to some of these. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think from the police standpoint, as I say, generally... From the victims we've spoken to, they've they felt like the police have been taking it seriously and doing what they can. Um, but you know, I do think uh, again, victims feeling like there is this this general sort of feeling I think from victims in within the Jewish community that it's not being taken as seriously as it should be. Uh, you know, not necessarily by the authorities, but just in general by, by the public. Um, that it's, you know, for whatever reason, that it's not, you know, they said, it, well, actually, a lot of people pointed to Russia for an example, right? So you have 
obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine that's coming up to its its two year anniversary of the full scale invasion of Ukraine. But we haven't, you know, to this to a large degree, seen Russian businesses targeted in you know the streets of Toronto, for example. But we have seen Jewish businesses targeted over and over again, uh, presumably in response to what the Israeli government is doing. Um, and so for whatever reason, um, whether it's in deep-seated anti-Semitism or strong opinions about the Israeli government uh, or, you know, strong opinions about what's going in Gaza, going on in Gaza, regardless, uh, you know, we are seeing Jewish communities disproportionately targeted. And, you know, obviously we have seen, you know, there are lots of various minority groups who are targeted by hate all the time, and that's awful. The Jewish population, just 1% of the Canadian population is by far the most targeted group by hate crimes and hate incidents in 2023, uh, and, like just far and away. And Jeff, the, close. the thing about this that I find so fascinating, and that's probably the, a really wrong word, but nonetheless, it, it seems hard to believe these feelings have just started now at the time of October 7th. Like for, for all of this to have happened, it almost suggests to me that this was bubbling under the surface a little bit it's hard to believe that all these people involved in all these incidents just develop these feelings after this yeah and you know that's a refrain we heard a lot from members of the jewish community who felt like you know that the anti-semitism had had been there uh, but that people now feel emboldened to act on it um, and for whatever it's worth, we actually just received a, a secret CSIS report that we received through access to information. CSIS looking into uh, concerns about violent extremism targeting Jewish communities in Canada. And the, the statistics that CSIS was able to compile show that anti-Semitic hate crimes had increased by 200% between 2015 and 2022. So a 200% increase even before October 7th. Um, so the numbers weren't getting the same attention as they have, obviously, in the last few months for obvious reasons. Uh, but the numbers were rising even before October 7th and then after October 7th and since they have just exploded. So so where does this go then? I mean, there's the police can be involved, um, but I'm not thinking and based on your investigation that they're going to catch or stop everything. So what happens here? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and I think a lot of them... Um, a lot of folks have been sitting back and wondering whether this will fizzle out, uh, whether we're just seeing a, a momentary spike in, in hate crimes and hate incidents targeting Jewish communities, or whether this is something that will be longer lasting. And obviously, you know, we can only speculate, um, but it, it certainly seems like the discourse and the rhetoric um, is ramping up and, and continues to be a problem. And obviously, members of the Jewish community, you know, many of whom say they just don't feel safe now walking around their own communities. Uh, and that feeling has endured now, uh, you know, months on. Um, so I think, you know, part of the reason where we, we wanted to do these stories was to to, to call this out, um, you know, to put a spotlight uh, on the dark spot here. And and hopefully by calling it out, it, it helps to deter it in some way. Well, um, but I want to so just we'll have more of these stories. Yeah. Just very quickly, just want to jump in, because the one thing that really strikes me about this is there would be no tolerance, I don't believe, in our society if a whole bunch of people went out and started marching against gay people or went out and started marching against black people or, you know, like th there is a clear delineation that says there are certain things that we will simply not tolerate in our society. Nobody would dare do those things. 
yet somehow it seems as though it's okay in some cases to march against Jewish people still. And that, that to me is a puzzle. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's worth noting. I mean, I, 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 I we caught up with a, a, what was a peaceful uh, pro-Palestinian protest in Montreal uh, a couple of weeks ago, hundreds of people, if not more than a thousand. And, you know, we spoke to a lot of, you know, great reasonable people in that crowd who are horrified by what they're seeing going on in Gaza and are condemning the Israeli government for its attacks in Gaza and the civilian casualties there, which have been horrific. Uh, so obviously, you know, I think there's a pretty clear line, or at least, you know, a lot of us can see it clearly between the actions of the Israeli government and the Israeli military and ordinary Jewish civilians here in Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, I think people are conflating those two things too often. And that's what Jewish people are, are, are concerned about, that they are being targeted. So it's one thing to have a, you know, a peaceful protest, as we've seen many of them uh, across Canada against the, the Israeli government and the Israeli military and the war in Gaza and all of that. Uh, but when that protest then crosses the line to targeting and, and focusing their anger on, on Jewish civilians, regardless of their political stripe, I think... Uh, obviously, that that's that's where the line gets crossed, and it's a pretty clear line, um, you know, to to many of us, but clearly not to all of us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's why we're sounding the alarm here. Saturday at seven on Global TV, you can see that. You can also go onto Global News, look online. Uh, investigation: the anti-Semitism that October seven unleashed in Canada. That is Jeff Semple. He is one of the reporters on this. Jeff, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Great to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Free agency for Canadian Football League teams opened the other day. Hamilton Tiger Cats, as you will recall, did not have a season particularly to remember last year. Not a great regular season and then eliminated in the first round of the playoffs. So there was room here. There was room to grow. There's room to get better. They want to win a great cup. It's been a long time. It's been since 99. So... How are they doing? Well, they signed Tim White yesterday. That's a big one because he's a big, big time receiver. Probably, well, not probably. He was the number one receiver on the free agency market. They've re-signed him. But how are they doing? Are they any closer to being a Grey Cup team? Josh Smith is co-host of the Podski Wee Wee podcast. Joins us now. Josh, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I am terrific. I appreciate this. So I I come into this almost loath to ask this question because as I said a moment or two ago, lots can happen between now and training camp. Guys can still be signed. Players can be discovered at training camp and emerge. Lots can happen. But are the Hamilton Ticats closer to being a Grey Cup contender today with what they've done in free agency than they were at the end of last year? Yikes, why not lead with the hardest question you possibly can, Scott? Boy, um, that is, I would say, tepidly, yes. I do think that they addressed some of their glaring needs, most specifically in the secondary with the signing of Jamal Peters, who is, for my money, the one of the best cornerbacks in the CFL and showed that with the Argos the past couple of seasons. The rest of the team... It's a lot of familiar faces, offensively speaking. You mentioned uh, just a second ago, Tim White coming back. That's a big get. But it's a lot of the same faces, but it's guys who now maybe have an extra year in the system and with the team. And and I always like to look at younger players and think if they get some playing time, you do expect them to take a leap in year two and year three, the more they get on the field. So it's certainly not 
anything close to a for sure. Ticap fans listening to this are well aware that winning a championship is not a for sure when it comes to this franchise, but I do expect them to be more competitive or at least have the pieces are there, I guess is what I should say. The roster is there for them to be competitive this year, and now it's just a matter of them putting it all together on the field, but it, we're still a ways away from that, so mm. let's all have fun and, and hope that by the end of this year that uh, tremendously long Grey Cup drought has come to an end. Well, let's break this down, offense-defense, for a second, and we'll, we'll get to the defense in a sec, because I think that's where a lot of the improvement has happened. The offense, you know, Tim White got signed yesterday. He is their number one receiver. It was a great thing, but you allude to something that I, I think gets lost in this. People get very excited because Tim White signed. But this is not an addition. This is just holding the line. He was here last year. It would have been a big loss to lose him, but I don't know that it makes things better by him coming back. It just makes things where they were. You now have to build around him to improve that. Absolutely. I think you're you're 100% correct on that. We look at it as an addition simply because he was a free agent and he came back. But it is just kind of more of the same. And I think from an offensive perspective, you can go and look at their roster and I've done a little bit of research trying to like piece together. Cause it, we're kind of like free agencies died down now. So we're kind of in that like dead zone here. So it's like, Oh, what's this team? What could they look like come training camp in a couple of months? And I, I looked at the the roster they, they had in the East semifinal loss to Montreal and the one that I think looks like could be the starting roster. And there aren't a heck of a lot of changes And this offense. Wasn't exactly letting the world on fire a year ago. So there is a new head coach in place, and that changes things a little bit. I know and Scott Monovic an was the offensive guy. coordinator for the second yep. half of the year, but now he's he's uh, he's there full time the whole offseason to put his system in. But the players are the same, so it's it's going to come down to if the scheme is better, if the players are better utilized, and quite frankly, it's going to come down. And I I know this sounds simplistic to the health of the quarterback and the play of the quarterback. That's what let the Ticats down last year for the majority of it. Believe I Mitchell wasn't healthy. Taylor Powell did a tremendous job, but he was a rookie and you live with the ups and downs of a rookie. If the quarterback plays better, Hamilton will be better on offense. If it's not, then it's going to be more of the same. And I know that at this time of year, everyone wants predictions and everyone wants to feel like it's all sunshines and rainbows, but that's kind of the, the doom and gloom of it is if, if Mitch doesn't play well, or if the quarterbacks don't play well, None of these changes, none of these additions, none of these retentions will, will make a, 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 a matter at all. Well, if Bo Levi Mitchell stays healthy and finds any of the form that he had in Calgary that lured him here, that made Hamilton want to have him, if he can do that, considering how little he played last year, that would be the equivalent of the biggest free agent signing yep. in the league. Nope, that's certainly true. A, a, given that we didn't get to see Bo last year, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of that, to be quite honest with you. But if he's if he's that player, the question is, can he be that player? And that's, it's been a long time since yep. we've seen Bo Levi Mitchell light this league on fire. So there's definitely some question marks there. But you're right. If he can even just play, let's be honest, he was bad last year when he did play. And then when he wasn't playing, it's because he was hurt. If he just plays middle of the pack quarterback. He doesn't have to be the superstar anymore, but if he can just get the ball into the playmaker's hands, they got a good rushing attack with James Butler. They have weapons like Tim White, like Terry Godwin, like Keandre Smith, who they've, who they've kept here. So the offensive line should be better. If he can just play mistake free football and not turn the ball over as much as he did last year, that will, that will make this team better. Just him being there and not thinking that he has to win the game on every throw, which looked like he tried to do a few times last year when he was actually playing. Yeah, it, that that is, I still think that, that 
the Ticats offense, uh, and, and you're right, it is simplistic, and I apologize for this, but I, I, it, it comes down to Bo Levi-Mitchell because they've lost Matthew Schiltz. They've lost some depth. He's gone to Calgary. They've lost some depth at quarterback. Uh, who knows if Powell does the same thing again? I mean, it is that this season, offensively, is riding, it seems, on Bo Levi-Mitchell finding it again. Yeah, and that's just the case in football. And, like, yeah, it is simplistic. It is kind of the... Well, of course, we're talking about the quarterbacks. Why aren't we talking about this? That Because in this game, and especially in this league, this is what it comes down to. If your quarterback's healthy and plays well, you're going to win a lot of football games. If not, you don't. It's as simple as that. All right. The other side of the ball, this is where the Ticats have made a lot of changes, whether it's by trades or whether it's by free agent signings. And really, the most of it has been pilfering from the Argos, which I suppose, considering they were 16-2 and two last year, is not a bad place to pilfer. The defense is going to look way different this year than it did last year. Yeah, and they got younger. And I know it's Simone Lawrence Day here in Hamilton. We're a few minutes away from his graduation ceremony, as he's calling it, taking place at Tim Hortons Field. And we're all kind of sad that he's moving on to his post-playing career. But the fact of the matter is he is 35, and he is up there. And he was even if he was coming back, it was probably only for one or two more years at most. You know what I mean? So... The defense got a lot younger. I think they got a lot more athletic. They did lose a lot of pieces, but they add, as I said off the top, they added Jamal Peters, who for my money is the best cornerback in the CFL. They they did steal from the Argos. And yes, that's not only does it make the Ticats better to take their guys, it makes the Argos worse. And that's what you want to do too. You're, you're chasing that. I know Montreal won the Grey Cup, but the Argos last year at 16-2 and two were the best team in the league for the vast majority of the year. You're chasing them as you've been chasing them now the last three years as they won the division three times in a row. Taking talents from their roster makes them worse, makes Hamilton better. That's a smart thing to do. They got a great pass rusher in Brandon Barlow, a guy who had nine sacks last year in a rotational role. He only had two starts. He played in 14 games and only started two of them and had more sacks than anyone on the Ticats had last year. So the Ticats had trouble getting to the quarterback last year. They've addressed that. They got stout in the middle with uh, Dwayne Hendricks. They got a new young middle linebacker in Jordan Williams. Again, all these guys are coming from the Argos. And then you have some of their second-year guys, your Kenneth Georges, your Will Sunderland, your Dexter Lawsons, who are going to get better from having played last year. So the defense is going to kind of be the catalyst for this team, I think, especially early if, if Bose takes a little to find himself. I think the defense is going to have to keep this team in games, and I think they now have the pieces in place to be able to do that. Would you let, let me put you as the GM of the Ar- of the uh, the Argos of the Ticats for a second? Would, GM of the Argos, I'm trading everybody. Yeah, you, <laughs> you you are now for the next 25 seconds the general manager of the Hamilton Ticats with absolute power, all encompassing power to do whatever. Would you, after the year he had last year, which was a very good year, would you have signed Simone Lawrence to a deal for this year? Yes, I would have brought him back for one more year. I think that given how he played at the tail end of last season, I think it showed that he still had some good football left in him. I would have brought him back. See, I I get why I don't, well, I don't know that, and it is Simone Lawrence Day in Hamilton, which is partially why we're talking about him. Uh, I don't know if he really wanted to retire or not. He is putting on a face to say, you know, it's time to graduate and all these kind of things. I, I suspect that if he could have found a taker, he probably would have played again. I suspect that's just a guess. He hasn't said that. But boy, I just, for a guy who had the kind of year that he did last year, I'm with you. For the, for for what it would probably have cost to bring him back, I think he would have been a guy that it would have been worth a shot to try again with. 
Yeah, and I think the thing that this not just a play on the field too. That's a leader in the locker room that you're losing. This team also hasn't brought back Ted Laurent, and I don't think they will. That's another leader in the locker room. Guys that have been here for a long time that you're losing, people are going to have to step in and fill that void. Now we know Simone's going to still be around the team, but it's in a different role, and I don't. He's not going to be in the locker room every no. day, and he's obviously not going to be on the field. I was. It was the, when I heard Ed Hervey talk about what their plans were, I kind of got the feeling that they weren't going to bring him back. So I kind of adjusted my thinking, but given how well he played down the stretch, and when you think of older players, you think of, Oh, maybe they'll start the year hot and then fade as the season goes on. It was the exact opposite. I thought Simone didn't play very well the first half of the season. And then around Labor Day, he picked up his play and obviously he was named the team's top defensive player and certainly felt like he had some gas left in the tank. I know in conversations with people that he never really wanted to leave Hamilton. So I think it would have taken something massive for him to sign with another team, but I am surprised that they didn't bring him back for one more go around. I, 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 I'm with you. You you can tell, maybe you can't tell, but you can look at his, when he talks and he's, he definitely seems content with the decision. I don't know if he's necessarily happy with it though, because I do think that he thinks, and I think a lot of people think, he could still play some pretty good football. Well, and I'm not convinced. I'll, I'll be honest, Josh, that we're, you know, at the bottom of this hour, Ben and I are going to be chatting about predictions people made. Now, I don't want to get this uh, confused by a prediction, but if this team is doing well in the second half of this year and looking like a contender and they have an injury at linebacker, I would... I am simply not going to rule out the possibility of Simone Lawrence suiting up in the back half of the year. I'm not either. I haven't talked. No one said anything to me about this and, and all the people I've talked to in the organization, but I, it's the same. He's sticking around the team. He's, he's staying around the city. If this team is looking like they could go on a run, do, do you bring him back for six games at the end of the year? Do you, do you bring him in and put, especially he'd be like fresh. he's had to suffer an injury? He'd be, it's, he'd be it's fresh. It's out of the realm of possibility yep. as far as I'm concerned. No, he'd be fresh. He'd be ready to go. You could, he could be impactful at that point. I mean, look, if you've seen him uh, in person, which I did at the press conference that he had the other day, uh, he, he's not a guy who suddenly developed a pot belly and has nope. uh, been eating hot dogs all all off season. I mean, he, he still looks like he could get on there and play. I, I'm not saying he's coming back. I'm simply saying he's, as you say, he's around this team. And if that opportunity presented and there was an opening, I would not be shocked to see him on the field. And it's not something that we haven't seen before. Earl Winfield famously did that years and years ago. He was retiring at the end. I think it was the 96 season. And then they convinced him to come back for one more. Uh, we've seen this team. Andy Fantuz was, had, he had an injury, but he was working in the front office, but as soon as he was healthy, they bring him back and he comes on the field. It's not out of the realm of possibilities. I don't think anyone should get their hopes up that it'll happen, but it would certainly not surprise me if we're in around Thanksgiving time and it's announced, oh, you know, Simone's coming out because the Thai Cats are, you know, 10 and four and look like they're going to go on a great cup run. Uh, we're going to bring Simone out of retirement. He's going to come back to try to get that ring. It wouldn't shock me. I'd say I'm, I'm probably leaning towards that not happening, but it certainly would be quite the storybook ending if that was to happen. And I think everyone associated with the team, fans and alike, would all be happy if that happened, if we got to see 21 on the field one more time. Okay, so we only have a couple of minutes left here. Uh, and again, I don't think either of us are making a prediction. I just am not willing to rule that thing out yet. All right, so... You mentioned a few minutes ago that one of the things that uh, is a really smart move is if you're trying to catch another team, it's great to get better, but also to pilfer away some of their talent is a good thing. The Ticats have done that with the Argos. Have 
the Ticats were, I hate to use the phrase, but they, they were a fair distance away from the Argos last year. And f- quite frankly, they couldn't beat the Alouettes either. They were 0-8 against those two teams. Are they closer? Ha- has the gap between those teams, I certainly think the Argos have gotten worse. They've lost a lot of talent. Has the gap between those teams closed enough that you would say the Argos are 50-50 to beat the Argos, the, the Ticats are 50-50 to beat the Argos now? Or uh, what has happened to the East? What, where, where are the Ticats now, if you look at this, where are they in the East ecosystem? I still think in the pecking order, they are third. I still think they're significantly better than the Ottawa Red Blacks, just because Ottawa's been so bad for so long. I'm not jumping on that train until I see them actually perform well when games matter. But I do still think they're behind the the Argos and the Owls. But I do think it's it's closed a little bit just because the Argos have gotten worse. And Montreal, they've retained a lot of their players. But as we saw here with some Ticats teams that succeeded by getting to the Grey Cup, sometimes you think you like, – and Montreal won, so it's a little bit different. But sometimes you think, oh, let's just run it back, and it'll be the exact same thing. And that doesn't always work. Sometimes you you need that fresh blood. You need that new energy, that the hunger – from some of these guys to come in and and push the guys that is like I've already been to the mountaintop, so to speak. I I do think that the Ticats can beat those teams, but it's I'm not as sold on them right now simply because, as we talked about a few minutes ago, there's still questions at the quarterback position, and Montreal doesn't have that, and Toronto certainly doesn't have that. So if I'm looking at teams, I'm going with uh, you look at quarterbacks first. I trust the Argos quarterback more. I trust Montreal's quarterback more. Bo, we know, can get to that level, but we just haven't seen that in a while. So until I see that from Bo, I'm going to be a little hesitant. But I do think that they will be much more competitive against those two teams this year. Again, like I said, not a prediction, just kind of my feelings as of right now. All right, and so let's say, let's just play the game and say, okay, the gap is closed. Hamilton can now beat those two teams. So there is an opening for them to get to the Grey Cup. How do they line up at this point? against the best of the West, because I think Winnipeg is still going to be good, maybe not as good. Saskatchewan has added a ton of talent. I think Saskatchewan, which was not very good last year, will be a lot better. BC still looks pretty good. If they somehow, how do they stack up against the Western teams? Yeah, it's at this time of year, everyone feels like they look good. Um, you know what I mean? Like, because it's everyone zero and zero, we're not at the season. How they stack up against the West is a little tougher they Winnipeg certainly seems like they're still the cream of the crop, but at the same time, they're a little older. They've yep. now suffered a couple of losses. So it's like, are they I, at some point that run's going to come to an end? It always does. I like BC, but they've lost a couple of pieces. They lost a, a big receiver in Dominic Grimes. So is, are they going to be able Betts. to do that? But they still look pretty good. Yeah, they lost Matthew Betts. Saskatchewan's added some guys, but we've seen the Riders in the past add guys. How does that, are they going to be able to gel? It's, it's really up in the air right now. Like the only team I feel actually, I'll be honest with you. I don't really feel confident about any team right now. Maybe Winnipeg's the most confident team I feel in across the league just because they've been there, done that. But as we sit here a week after free agency open, it's, it feels as wide open as it ever does. And then of course the season will start and we'll be going, oh, how didn't we see this coming? And that's yeah. just the way that the CFL works every year. Well, it's just, it's better, I suppose, right now in, uh, in February to at least think that it's open than to say, oh man, add another year to the, to the Ticat thing. But I mean, this is year number 25. This is, this is, this is the anniversary you don't want to have 25 years since the last Grey Cup. It's, uh, it, it's time. It is time. It certainly is. It certainly is. I, I, who would have thought in 99, I was still in high school when that happened, and now I'm in my 40s. I wouldn't have thought 
I would have gone through my entire twenties and thirties before this team would win again. And that's uh, just well, the nature of the beast with the Ticat fandom, isn't it? Think think about that. There are people who have now graduated university who have not been alive to see a Ticats Grey Cup championship. That's 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 got to be put to an end at some point soon. I yeah. I, I would hope. You're making me feel old, Scott. You're making me feel old. Uh, that is Josh Smith. He is co-host of the Podski Wee Wee podcast. You can find that where fine podcasts are sold and shared. Uh, Josh, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. I'll be on anytime you want. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.